Thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Ben Grinspan, and today we're going to be looking at culture in the vertical using Q, our cultural intelligence platform, to unpack trends and changes in human behavior. Joining me today is my co-briefer, the wonderful Carrera Koenig, uh, and we are also joined by our in-house, uh, I don't know why we're going to, well, we can call them agriculture experts, Danny Thibodeau and Hannah Jerome, fresh off some awesome work. Uh, in the space. And today we are continuing our coverage of Business Bets 2022 by focusing on net zero stakes, thinking about the future of cellular labriculture and, uh, and, and, and you know, cloned meats. There's a lot to get into here and there's going to be some fun stuff. So hopefully as you watch this, you're having, I don't know, uh, a bunch of uh, impossible, like a nice impossible burger or something. Um, a number of signals here. Uh, as we as we dive in, um, you know, it's a fairly well discussed topic. Again, this plant based stuff is kind of everywhere. A um, lot of investment information, actually. But let's look at our element of culture map. And unsurprisingly, we have our two elements of culture that I would exactly expect to see here, which are clean and provenance. Right, clean is our element of culture that focuses less on like actually mopping your floors, but more about the cultural value of things that are pure or free of things that we consider to be, um, you know, unnecessary. And then provenance is, uh, is, is what it is. It's about flavor, it's about heritage. It makes a ton of sense we're talking about both today when we think about the future of the steak. So Carrera, what else did I miss? What else here is valuable for us to look into as we start our briefing? Yeah, I think the edible tech one is, is pretty on the nose here as well. I mean, we're gonna be talking about 3D printing a steak, which almost just feels like too much but uh, it's happening, it's here. And waste positive, you know, as we get kind of reduce livestock, we are going to see uh, greenhouse gas emissions go down. And that's kind of what we're aiming for when we do lab uh, uh, cellular agriculture. So those are two huge ones in this space. Okay, so obviously if we're gonna talk a little bit about the future of net zero sake, sometimes we also think about uh, our carbon footprint. Um, and I feel like this, this you know, uh, should be fairly basic, but um, we often forget this when we're in Shake Shack, our food choices play a big role in reducing our carbon footprint. I know it's obvious, but it's well worth going over. Um, well, and obviously if you don't like your planet broiling alive, like say a hamburger, it's something we definitely want to pay attention to. Caroline Wimberly recently appeared on NPR uh, as the COP26 climate conference was going on in Glasgow last fall. Um, to discuss the connection between what we eat and our carbon footprints. Now, Wimberly lays out a number of important uh, numbers, frankly. First of all, half of farm emissions come from methane from livestock, right? If you are a, a vegan or a vegetarian, uh, you are already doing your part. Another huge component is transportation, and the third is just tied to crop production. So we are all, and everybody who eats vegetables also has a role to play here too. Now, asked by the host uh, which was more sustainable, the haggis that was served at dinner in uh, Scotland, uh, or the, I'm told there was a vegetarian pasta, uh, Wimberly naturally said, you will never have a haggis that is a lower carbon footprint than a vegetarian pasta. I'm paraphrasing there just a little bit. Um, and that's kind of the balance, isn't it? Right, so, you know, like I love a good corned beef sandwich, right? It reminds me of my family and trips to the deli growing up, but obviously eating beef is the kind of thing that we ought to do uh, incredibly rarely, not only for our heart health, but also uh, for the planet as well. But that said, that corned beef sandwich has a lot of cultural value for me, just like the haggis does for people who live in Scotland. So in some ways we are asked to make these choices, not just in a vacuum, but also understanding that food uh, evokes culture and meaning and, and love in a way that um, 
very few other things can. So that's what's really important in what Wimberly says here, right? We need to focus on on making the good uh, choices that we can. Um, you know, one thing to that you know we think about is uh, thing about eating local. She's like eating less meat is actually more effective than eating local. Uh, strawberry flown from you know from Australia to the U.S. is still ultimately going to be better for you than eating a pound of lamb. Um, so this is all about making choices, and I have to start here with my my partner in crime and with some of these conversations, Hannah, because we have long talked about this. Um, how, I mean, I guess my question is how much more aware are consumers today uh, of the facts presented in here about the connection between carbon footprint and our food choices than they were say three years ago when, uh, when maybe Sparks and Honey started some of this work for the first time? So much has changed is really, you know, when you're speaking is kind of what I'm thinking in my head. But I think, you know, from three years ago, um, the conversation turns from footprint to like a plural, because I think what consumers are learning is there's no one metric um, to describe, you know, carbon, uh, carbon footprint as it relates to food and beverage um, supply, food supply mm -hmm. chains are really complex, growing Probably. animals and raising animals is really complex. Um, so so I think when we think of you know these new lab grown meats, um, they're primed to enter. They have their own place in the conversation, um, and I think people are now trying to fundamentally fundamentally understand just the pros and cons um, because you know kind of each has their own, but each has their own place in the market too. Yeah, and it's also about uh, that's how adaptation grows, right? Like that's the kind of thing that we need to think about for for clients certainly when we imagine like what the future of this um, will will look like. There's no one size fits all, um, you know, rules, and that's really difficult when you're talking about something as important and and complex as as the you know the the world of agriculture. Okay. Um, so we, we've addressed that. I felt like that was important to start there. Let's talk about cellular agriculture uh, and how that might solve some of this problem. So take us to our next step here, Carrera. Absolutely, yes. As Ben mentioned, this signal uh, is where we're looking at how cellular agriculture could be the future of farming. So Ben also mentioned that livestock alone um, around the world is making up around 14.5% of greenhouse emissions. The food industry accounts for a third of all carbon emissions. And as we try and keep up with growing population numbers, this is only going to increase. And it's not just the livestock alone, it's the deforestation, the transport, the waste management, the food storage, every step is contributing to higher carbon footprint. But here's the, the hopeful sign. Scientists and a growing number of companies are hoping that growing meat, you know, everything from beef to turkey to even fish through cellular cultures in laboratories may offer a solution to this uh, environmental issue. Uh, the story kind of starts in 2013. There was a group of scientists that unveiled the world's first lab-grown beef burger formed from, a, from small bundles of muscle fibers made by culturing cells taken from a cow. Scientists called this creation a very good start. Uh, fast forward to today, you know, almost 10 years later, the company is called Mosa Meat, and they can create around 80,000 burgers just from a single sample of cells the size of a sesame seed. So experts say that cell-based meats can be produced at the same cost as conventional meat 
once it has scaled up. So I've got a question for you, Danny. If the world is to meet this ambition of reaching net zero carbon emissions by the middle of the century, as outlined in the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, the food industry is obviously going to have to play its part. How might the food we eat change as 2050 draws near? So as Ben mentioned earlier, I recently worked on an agriculture project and was pleasantly surprised to learn about all the work farmers are doing to manage climate change. And they are certainly doing their part. And as we've been talking about, we as consumers have to do our part too. The food we eat will obviously change based on what's available, but it's important to note the adoption of veganism um, on the rise globally, and it can officially no longer be considered a fad. So how people do veganism depends on where they live and how much money they have to spend on food. And in terms of meat consumption, we'll likely see a growing divide in terms of who gets to eat real meat versus artificial meat based on socioeconomic status. And hopefully by 2050, we'll have a better solution for food sovereignty and make healthy sources of protein available for all. And another point there is how we even talk about it. So we're right now saying lab grown meat, but are we not going to be able to call it meat if it doesn't come from an animal? I think there'll be a new discussion around what we actually call this. Yeah, it reminds me of that uh, urban legend about a certain uh, fried chicken uh, uh, franchise that uh, apparently doesn't sell real chicken, but that's not true. Hey, we talked about a lab-grown burger, which I would love to try, but there is some other news about a lab-grown steak, and uh, we have to have a conversation about how much meat you're actually going to get if you have one of these things right now. Carrera? Yeah. Absolutely, let's dive into one of the companies making lab-grown steak a reality. Um, the largest lab-grown steak yet has been unveiled by the Israeli company Meat Tech 3D, weighing in at nearly four ounces, that's 110 grams. Uh, the steak is composed of real muscle and fat cells derived from tissue samples taken from a cow. Living bovine stem cells were incorporated into bio inks that were then placed into the company's 3D printer to produce the steak. It was then matured in an incubator in which the stem cells differentiated into fat and muscle cells. The company said it aimed to produce cultured meat at the same cost as conventional meat, but the steaks will not appear on dinner plates just so soon. The company's first venture into the market will just to be will be just to sell cultured fat as ingredients for other products projects um, with a pilot plant uh, planned for 2022. There is some hope on the horizon. Ashton Kutcher is involved. He's uh, the latest celebrity to sign on to the project. If he can do what he did at Twitter here, uh, we're safe, we're, we're hopeful. Um, I've got a question for Hannah. What do you think these breakthroughs in lab-grown meat means for traditional meat industries and other tangential industries like restaurants, fast food, home cooking. I'm wondering if everyone's going to have like a 3D meat printer next to their air fryer uh, in the future. What do you think? It's cool to think that that actually might be the case, but I think what this means for farmers and meat companies and restaurants is that you not only now have to be excellent at your craft of food, but you have to be a really, really good storyteller. Um, and that's something that really differentiates a lab grown meat. Uh, it's, you know, th that's a 
storytelling experience of innovation. And maybe that's where Ashton Kutcher comes in. But for, you know, a meat company, there's a story about, again, like an ethically raised cattle. Um, it's kind of going beyond the product and more about, you know, like local culture and land. It's something that's very, very personal. Um, so what I do think, again, is cool here too. Like there is one story of innovation and then there is one story of like massive tradition. Yeah. And I think we're also going to have more chance to talk about Ashton Kutcher a little later in the briefing. Um, or, we, you know, we can bring him up wherever we want. Um, okay, let's move on, because we've talked a lot. I mean, I think it's funny when we talk about, like, impossible meat or impossible chicken, this, like, lab-grown steak. Like, we're thinking very heavily in uh, on the on the surface level, get it? But it's time we also think about what lab-grown meats mean in um, uh, seafood as well. So Europe's largest uh, frozen food company, Nomad Food, has teamed up with US company Blue Nalu uh, to develop seafood products grown from cells in laboratories rather than harvested in our oceans. Um, this is an article from the Indian Times uh, that says that Nomad Foods uh, told Reuters uh, a couple weeks ago uh, that it aimed to commercialize cell-cultured seafood to meet rising demand and to support efforts to safeguard the long-term sustainability of the planet's fish stocks. Quote, the importance of sustainability has never been more apparent and the role of technology in delivering needs is, is accelerating, uh, said Nomad Foods chief executive, Stefan Deschimaker. Uh, the process of developing uh, was developed in, uh, in a San Diego, California uh, based lab of taking basically living fish cells, isolating the muscle, fat and connective tissue and fed the nutrients uh, so they can multiply just like that steak that uh, Carrera told us about. Um, they are then shaped into portions uh, of seafood uh, using uh, practices commonly utilized within the food industry. I'm thinking like chicken nuggets like thing. Um, there's no genetic modification, which is actually fairly different if you think about that, uh, that farmed salmon that you're getting for like, you know, 11, 10, 11 dollars a pound. That stuff is definitely genetically modified. Not that there's anything wrong with genetic modification. It is the basis of agriculture. Now, um, you know, uh, it does uh, raise interesting questions about seafood itself. Um, which is, by the way, I mean, fish is the number one animal protein in the world. We eat a lot more fish than we do anything else, right? Um, and it's also one of the very few wild proteins that we eat. Goat, chicken, pork, all the other ones are cultivated. Fish, uh, while we can cultivate a lot of them, uh, many of them are still are still wild caught. Now, obviously there are huge issues with it. Fish stocks um, are struggling to meet the global population needs. Uh, you have entities in the EU who like completely struggle to keep their member states from not uh, harvesting fishing. There are tuna boats that catch your tuna that use slave labor. There are some messed up things going on and how seafood gets to your plate. So I guess my question about this is provenance. And I might show a little bit of my snobbery here, but you know, when you think about salmon, you want it in Alaska. You want it to come from Alaska, right? When you're eating your lobster, you want to eat it in Maine or you want to know it's tied there. Same thing with your crabs in, in Maryland, a little closer uh, to my apartment. Um, so Hannah, I guess my question is, what do you make of that connection between the really strong value that we assign seafood about when it comes to provenance, right? That Maryland crab cake, that, um, you know, that Alaska king salmon or whatever, and also the nature of, of this cellular agriculture. I mean, are we going to hit a point where it's like, you know, we eat the cloned stuff uh, on, uh, on weekdays and maybe on a weekend or for a birthday, we get the real stuff? Where, what does the future of that look like to you? So this goes back to Danny's point, because I think you're exactly right, Ben. Seafood is incredibly local. It's very special. 
Um, I dream about a lobster roll I had in Maine all the time. Um, but it's not sustainable nor feasible for anyone cooking at home. But there is this huge, huge, huge demand for it, especially um, the rise in pescatarians. I mean, like astronomical. Um, so I think, you know, people are looking for that occasional factor when they're grocery shopping. Um, and it serves just so many more purposes today. So the bridge is definitely there. Yeah. I wanna, also, I, I wanna... think... Go ahead, Karen. So I want to jump in and think too, like, it's almost becoming, um, you know, an expectation or something that we can anticipate that for every trend, there's going to be the anti-trend. There's going to be yeah. the people that say, no, I don't want this, you know, when we, and it might even, you know, subsect with luxury too, where uh, the new luxury is having the old thing. Like I think about how, when everything was automated uh, and we had all these like automated um, robots answering calls, the new luxury is one-to-one -one personalization because like, that's what we're missing. So I am interested to see like the luxury market around fresh fish um, come about. Yeah, I mean, listen, beef is not a, an issue. Cheap beef is an issue, right? And I think we've all become pretty cognizant of that, that we're like cutting down the rainforest to grow cheap beef and overgrazing major places. We need to have that same conversation about seafood. Um, also catfish, amazing, <laughs> delicious fish. Fries up great, incredible for the environment. Okay, let's move to another thing that's gonna get my blood boiling here uh, that's fairly similar. Uh, Rebecca Coons reports in Biofuels Digest, and don't worry, this is an old one if you haven't read the new one, <laughs> that scientists in Hong Kong are working on tackling one of the saddest and most messed up threats to global wildlife, the exploitation of wild animals for traditional Chinese medicine. Now, TCM is a $434 billion market, um, that does have lots of, of very sustainable and environmentally friendly practices. In fact, probably the vast, vast majority of them are perfectly fine. But there is a niche in here um, that basically exploits parts of animals to do the traditional Chinese medicine. Now, sometimes if it's reasonably harvested, this article talks about uh, donkey hide gelatin. There are plenty of donkeys. You can have that, uh, that all that you want. Um, but it also talks about the illegal hunting that's connected to uh, traditional Chinese medicines that use things like rhino horn, um, which, by the way, is the same chemical compound in your fingernails, um, used that for an aphrodisiac, or pangolin scales, which can often be used to protect against black magic. And pangolins are thought to have been possibly one of the sources for COVID-19. So you can see that it's not just killing these special animals, it might also be killing ourselves. Uh, to get these Chinese medicine cures. Now, Kenneth Lee, a professor of Chinese, uh, at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, says small tissue samples from endangered animals could differentiate into uh, muscle cells, bone, and cartilage, and fat, the stuff that people look for when they poach these animals. Quote, I think this is a legitimate process that can counteract illegal animal trafficking, he says. Now, it's worth noting, too, that the government of Xi Jinping a couple years ago made a big effort to step down on just this kind of traditional Chinese medicine, right? A lot of this was tied to graft and government corruption. And in some of his anti-corruption movements, they shut down a lot of um, this market in China, which is good and commendable. The problem is a lot of it moved to other countries in Asia, like Vietnam and Cambodia, uh, who have not had the same uh, anti, you know, um, uh, anti-poaching measures, but still observe traditional Chinese medicine. Now, the question is, would a lab-grown rhino horn work, right? Well, one way would be to flood the market, make it so cheap to get, uh, you know, essentially make it uh, profitless to go and kill a rhino in Africa or in India. 
Um, and, you know, just have people turn to regular, say, ED medications instead of eating what are what is functionally toenails and hair. So, Carrera, I'm going to bring you back in here. What are your thoughts here? I mean, because I know I know you've just done some work uh, and some personal thinking about indigenous design and medicine. These are in many ways indigenous practices, um, you know, and we, we need to find value in that. The ones that, uh, you know, use rhino horn have no merit as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I guess the question is, is a lab-grown option kind of a, a decent ethical bridge between the demand and the, and the supply? Or is it the kind of thing where it's like, no, don't use rhino horn, it is keratin. Keratin is rich, it is, is when your fingernails are made of. What, what's, the, what's the ethical question here, you know? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about medicinal practices that have been around for 3000 years. So the culture here is so powerful and potent that I would hesitate saying like, oh, get rid of it. Why are you guys doing that? That's great. This is like, you know, centuries of more than centuries. So I think that having the lab grown options uh, is a huge, is a great solution here. I mean, it will be the same um, compound like chemically as rhino horn, as uh, pangolin, as, you know, uh, donkey gelatin. So I think just to uh, use the, the examples uh, listed in the, in the article, uh, so I think it's a great solution. I think, you know, kind of everyone wins here, the animals, the people, the cultural traditions. I mean, mm -hmm. this is this is roast beef, you know, one man's roast beef is another person's pangolin, cultural yeah. relativism. Let's let's save some animals while we, you know, celebrate our cultures. And to be clear, if rhinos were as plentiful as donkeys, I would say kind of half at it, but they're not, right? Um, Danny, let's bring you in here. What's your take on this signal? Do you think it's that sort of ethical bridge or, or is it an ethical bridge too far? It's an ethical bridge. I agree with Carrera on this point. Um, if we can create these solutions in new ways, let's tap into that. Uh, it's like our, our, um, our element of culture biomimicry. So we're looking at indigenous practices and how can we recreate that, but in the lab so that it's safer for everyone. Yeah, all right. Well, um, let's move forward to talking about this, uh, uh, this uh, speaking of ethics, this ethical question about if lab-grown meat, a nice piece of lab-grown pork chop uh, can be halal or kosher, Carrera. <laughs> Yeah, I love these signals, this one and the last one, because it kind of gets to this, you know, we have these leaps in scientific um, innovation, you know, 3D printing meat, lab grown fish, but how is how does culture uh, kind of shift with these new paradigms? And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it requires a lot of rabbis getting together and thinking very hard about it. Uh, in this example, we've got this question the, uh, around how lab-grown meat, because no animal is being slaughtered, the, the lack of bloodshed creates all sorts of questions for religious Muslims and Jews who only eat such meats as beef, chicken, and lamb from animals slaughtered according to long-established religious rules. For instance, can meat be halal or kosher if it's grown in a lab and doesn't come from a killed animal? Is it really even meat? Uh, there are no small questions here, given that billions of people globally so, uh, subscribe to faiths or traditions that have strict guidelines around meat preparation. Um, just to use one example, there's this company called Just Eat. It's got a lot of backers in Silicon Valley. They've had a lot of success with chicken, and now they're looking to... Uh, 
to have a facility in Qatar to really tackle the, the, the Muslim market. Um, and while they've consulted with religious experts, it hasn't gotten the official seal of approval uh, for this new type of meat. You know, there's a lot of kind of money in the air floating around uh, the ethicalness of pork. Um, uh, the, the article goes through a lot of really interesting answers. One particular one that I found interesting was that in Pakistan, the second, which is the second largest Muslim country, scholars led by uh, Islamic law experts uh, ruled that cultured meat is permissible only if the original cells come from animals slaughtered according to the Sharia complement process. Uh, however, many startups rely on cell lines that originated in live animals. So this kind of hints that maybe, you know, we wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be permissible, it wouldn't be halal. So Ben, actually, I'd like to get your uh, thoughts here. Um, how do you think religious traditions will adapt to lab-grown meat technologies? So it's it's such a fascinating question. And I, I we've actually seen, I think, this discussed every once in a while, but it's a really, really good question. I mean, listen, I think there's a difference. I'm going to go back to your, your, your original point to start here, which is this idea that, like, you know, culture, and I spoke about this earlier, culture determines what we eat and how we eat, right? It also determines our ethics. And I could actually see us landing in a place where imams and, and rabbis come forward and say, like, you know, it's lab grown. It's like, if, it's, if it comes from a biopsy rather than a slaughtered animal, you're welcome to eat it. Um, there is a really strong, but the issue is that's not gonna get rid of the really strong cultural prohibition, right? Um, you know, my, my mother has never tasted pork. She's not, or intentionally, she is not kosher. She's not gonna eat it. I have trouble imagining that she or anybody else who observes that from whether they're Jewish or, or Muslim, or even if you think about, I don't know, Hindus uh, who, who might shy away from eating lab cultured beef, um, you know, they're still gonna think, I, I think, I suspect they will still think it's haram that it's, Verboten or, or or whatever, and so the availability does not always translate to the desire. Now, will it end up at chic restaurants in Tel Aviv and Dubai and you know Bombay? Quite possibly, but mass adoption. I think you're unlikely to see people do that in in any uh, big way. Um, sadly, because it is an interesting topic. Um, let's move very quickly to our final signal here, because we've talked a lot about animals today, and we have a perfect. Sparks and Honey Advisory Board uh, animal crossover here. Um, and a brief shout out to that advisory board member and productivity slash creativity expert, Rita J. King, who in her most thrilling media appearance since she did our daily culture briefing late last year, King was featured this weekend on NPR's All Things Considered. I'm talking about a new and very unusual friend that she made during the pandemic. Rita, who lives just a couple blocks from our offices in Manhattan, was on her roof one day and struck up a friendship with a local crow. Um, she tells us that she, well, she tells uh, NPR, uh, Stephen King, I believe, that um, she and the crow uh, started to like get near each other and then started exchanging gifts. So she would give it peanuts and cheese. The, uh, the crow would come back with bottle caps, Legos, other doodads uh, for, you know, uh, to show its Corvine sense of friendship. She said she actually got to watch them like teach each other how to fly, how to navigate the buildings. Crows are famous for being really, really smart and having great memories. Um, and so, yeah, shout out to our friend Rita J. King for finding a very special new uh, friend during the pandemic. Um, and she's gonna have to get her new crow friend to come join us on the briefing someday to talk about I think goth culture in Gen Z, right? Uh, there's nothing that says we can't have a guest who's not human. Um, that's gonna take us through our briefing for the day. I suspect we could talk about this a lot more, but a huge, huge shout out to our experts in the space, Danny and Hannah. Thank you guys for joining Carrera. I know you thought this was a toothsome brief briefing. Appreciate all your energy. 
Thank you guys for joining. You can join us Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at noon New York time on our LinkedIn page. While you're there, jump in the comment section. Let us know your thoughts on the future of lab-grown meat, what you think is haram and what you think is looking tasty. If you're interested in Q, the cultural intelligence platform we use to build these briefings, please feel free to reach out. We'd love to give you a tour, whether you want you know, to know what's going on with Impossible Burgers or Rhino Horn. So until tomorrow, consider yourselves briefed. <laughs>